The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Clara Ferreira Marquez with Reuters Breaking Views in Hong Kong. On our show today, I'll be speaking to Australian economist and former government advisor, Professor Ross Garneau, author of Australia's landmark climate change reviews. We'll be chatting about his new book, Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity. And joining us from Adelaide is my Breaking Views colleague and climate enthusiast, Anthony Curry. Welcome both. Hello, Claire. Good to be here. Thank you very much. So, Professor Gunn, if I might start, that the lectures that you um, have given in the run-up to the book and now the book itself is really trying to shift the conversation in Australia from carbon crisis to carbon opportunity. And it's really come at an extremely opportune time. I, I, I think you probably couldn't have foreseen how, how timely it's been. Why has Australia been so slow, in your view, to recognise the opportunity part of the problem? Well, the opportunity itself has emerged gradually. Uh, when I did the original work, uh, my climate change review for all of the governments of Australia, federal and state, back in 2007 and 2008, uh, Australia had a very good reason to be a big player in an international effort to deal with climate change because we were the country that was going to be most affected are most damaged by unmitigated climate change. We were vulnerable in many ways. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was going to be uh, costly, at least. That's what my modelling suggested. Uh, after a number of decades, uh, we'd get back those costs and uh, eventually be much better off economically by dealing with climate change than not. Uh, but there was going to be an initial cost. What's happened since then uh, is that the costs of renewable energy, and I must say as well, the opportunity for sequestering carbon in the landscape uh, have uh, fallen, uh, costs have fallen, opportunities increased much more rapidly than anticipated. For example, in my modelling for the 2008 review, uh, I, after consulting everyone who should know, I had uh, costs of solar PV coming down by a few percent per annum. Well, as it turned out, in the decade after that, cost fell by 85%, a much higher compound rate. So that by about 2015 or 2016, it was clear that before long, uh, the low-cost way of providing energy in future was going to have a base of solar uh, and wind. And Australia has by far the richest endowments of solar and wind in the developed world. Uh, so that in a world heading to zero emissions, uh, economic activity, as we've all agreed to do at Paris at the end of 2015, Australia will have comparative advantage in energy-intensive processing. It's an advantage that won't be so easily traded away. You, you date it back to 2015, 2016, this sort of turning point, which is amazing, because given even in the recent uh, May election in Australia, there's still the conversation is about cost, the cost to jobs, the cost to the economy in particular states. Why, again, why is that? Well, maybe I haven't been persuasive enough. Maybe I haven't uh, explained (laughs) things clearly enough. Uh, I've been the Australian economist uh, focusing on this most uh, clearly. I gave a public lecture in Adelaide uh, in 2015 at the University of Adelaide entitled... uh, Australia's uh, superpower of the low-carbon world economy. Uh, 
uh, maybe I'm not good enough at getting people to listen. Professor, it's Anthony Curry here. You, I mean, you, you've got to contend with um, politicians who have chosen not to either not to believe in carbon in climate change or to uh, put it off. I mean, that, that that's a, that's a very big hurdle to get over, isn't it? You can't necessarily, the, the good news uh, of, of what you're talking about in your book may well be true, but convincing politicians is, is an entirely different matter, especially when their constituents often are those who are going to be most affected by what they think are the problems. Well, we do have some characteristics of our political culture that are unhelpful. Well, we're, we're going through a period in where uh, uh, corporate money is uh, uh, decisively influential uh, in the uh, in the political marketplace, and uh, a lot of money has been behind disinformation uh, in uh, muddying the waters of our climate change. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we're one of two countries in the world which uh, um, a corporation dedicated to misinformation about climate change is the dominant source of news of most people. Both of those countries have a different spectrum of opinion. Uh, on uh, climate change in Europe or Japan or China or India. So those two facts are probably important. What about then the, the current situation in Australia? And obviously your book has come out at a week when the country is, is uh, mesmerised by these terrible pictures of, of bushfires. We're coming out, uh, out of a dramatic drought. Does that make it any easier to get your argument across and to get people to listen I was on the ABC program Q&A, uh, a widely watched program last night uh, with uh, people who would normally represent a spectrum of opinion on this issue, including a member of the coalition parliamentary party at the federal level. And uh, there wasn't uh, dissent across that group uh, about uh, the importance of the world getting to zero emissions in Australia as part of that world by, by the middle of this century. So, so I think there probably is a shift going on, and and it's become very difficult to continue to deny that climate science, uh, as the evidence grows stronger of the warming and drying of southern Australia, the warming of all of Australia, more common bushfires and other extreme weather events, and the bad events being worse than they used to be. I think drip, drip, the accumulation One of the arguments you make in your book is that it is not too late. It's not too late yet for Australia to jump on this opportunity, and that is largely because of the falling costs. Yes, it's certainly not too late for us to make good use of the economic opportunity. Uh, it's too late to avoid some of the damaging effects of climate change. The, the drying and warming of southern Australia has had a disruptive effect on agriculture and rural livelihoods that that can't be reversed. We can stop things getting much, much worse, but we can't reverse uh, the, the uh, damage that's already uh, been done. But, but uh, the, the main point of the book is it's not too late to, to uh, assert and uh, make good use of Australia's immense advantages of low-cost renewable energy and great opportunity for sequestering carbon in the landscape. Uh, which will be great assets in the zero-carbon world economy of the future. Uh, Professor, let's talk a, a bit about carbon sequestration or carbon farming, I think you also call it in your book. 
and you know, I look at say the likes of Exxon, who like to proclaim, as they did in their most recent earnings, that they've spent what twenty billion over the past twenty or ten billion over the past twenty years looking at carbon sequestration. They still don't really have a much of a product. I know Austra- certain parts of Australia are looking at this. I know Victoria, uh, state of Victoria, is looking into a hydrogen projects uh, using coal along with the Japanese. But it's all pretty much, I wouldn't say unproven, but it's not its not proven to be a good, viable uh, or, or ability to store carbon on a on a major scale. You can do it in small scale, but it's no, there's no proven ability yet to do it um, economically on a large scale, is it? So h- how do you see that changing? Well, we're talking about two things. One is geological sequestration and one is biosequestration. Uh, the geological sequestration is important but probably limited. Um it's a proven technology at work, so um, my colleagues at the University of Melbourne have, uh, over the past decade, uh, run a very effective project in the uh, Otway gas fields that uh, uh, shows that uh, uh, the, the carbon dioxide can be uh, safely sequestered, permanently sequestered in uh, geological structures where they're favourable. We've got other very favourable structures in Australia, some of them well located in relation to uh, industrial areas that uh, currently uh, and prospectively uh, emit large amounts of carbon dioxide. So I think it's a proven technology. It always has a cost. It will never be cheaper to capture carbon dioxide and uh, uh, permanently store it in geology uh, than to vent it in the atmosphere just as it's never cheaper for a builder to uh, cart away the rubble from a building site rather than throw it over the fence into a neighbor's property. It's always cheaper just to throw your rubble over the fence uh, or your carbon dioxide into the air than to look after it. But uh, there'll be some places where the geological sequestration opportunity is uh, so favorable that costs, uh, when combined with very low costs of... uh, fossil uh, energy or uh, or fossil industrial raw materials uh, can still be viable against the other zero emissions alternatives, which uh, quantitatively much more important is the biosequestration. This is a proven te- technology. It's got a tra- track record going back to over a billion years. It turned a carbonic atmosphere to uh, the oxygen-rich uh, atmosphere that makes mammalian life possible. Uh, and buried the carbon that was once in the atmosphere into uh, uh, the Earth's crust and uh, oceans, and uh, that gave us the oil and gas and coal and limestone. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that, that that process is still a very powerful one. There's more carbon uh, uh, in the soils uh, within a couple of metres of the Earth's surface than there is in the whole of the atmosphere in Australia, we have a much richer per capita endowment of op- endowment of opportunity for uh, uh, sequestration in soils, uh, pastures, uh, woodlands uh, than any other country. So uh, th- this is not small in Australia, and it should should sit alongside uh, the use of our renewable energy first of all to replace uh, fossil energy in our own use, but much more importantly to produce uh, internationally competitive. Uh, goods, mostly processing Australian minerals uh, for supply of world market 
One of the other points that you make in the book is you try and shift the, the a lot of the discussion in Australia has been around climate has been pro coal anti coal, and you're actually trying to shift it to explain that there there is a an opportunity in clean clean steel clean aluminium. What do we need to do to get to that point to recognise that there will be perhaps even consumer demand for steel that is environmentally friendly or at least zero emissions? Well, there, there is already demand for zero emissions metals. Uh, some, some users of metals are insisting on that, either because the corporations themselves think it's an important objective or because they judge their customers do, and that's going to become more important. Uh, we're going to find that more and more governments uh, require zero emissions inputs as part of their own climate change policies. Europe's heading in that direction. Uh, there was a time when border taxes to support such an approach uh, would have been inhibited by uh, concern that this would breach uh, international trade rules, but Mr Trump's um, destruction of the global trading rules uh, reduces that inhibition. So I think we are going to get movement in that direction, uh, for example, in Europe, and that will increase demand for, for green steel. But uh, so, so in a world in which, uh, through one mechanism or another, we're losing our aluminium and steel with zero emissions, and that's the world we've all agreed to be at uh, by signing up to Paris, uh, then uh, the low-cost uh, paths uh, are going to be uh, through the case of aluminium. Well, energy are already the low-cost paths. Uh, in the case of aluminium, that's, that's a relatively easy, straightforward one. In the case of steel, the low-emissions paths will almost certainly be... Uh, through use of, of hydrogen, base of coke to uh, reduce the iron oxide into iron metal. We've already got uh, operating technologies producing hydrogen and then feeding that into direct reduction of iron oxide into iron metal. We've got working examples uh, in Europe. And uh, from what we already know about the plant and the technology, we can see that it's not hopelessly uneconomic now, with the cost of renewable energy continuing to come down, with the cost of electrolyzers uh, uh, to uh, turn electricity into hydrogen coming down with increased scale of manufacture, uh, then we're going to get continued reduction in the cost of hydrogen and uh, hydrogen-based uh, iron metal production. Uh, so uh, uh, there's a strong dynamic that's going to shift the production of iron metal in places which have iron ore and which uh, uh, have great capacity to produce low-cost uh, hydrogen. Australia is that place above all others. So, so thinking about sort of transition risks here, it seems like what you're saying from, from taking especially carbon sequestration into account, that will allow industries like coal to survive for longer, which means that the, the, the fear that the uh, anti-climate change combatters have, that the jobs will disappear and it will be an economic problem throughout the economy, or from throughout the economy. It seems like you're saying that by, by using these techniques, you can actually make the transition to a cleaner economy far less painful than people thought. Is that correct? Well, I'm not depending on the carbon sequestration. I'm not depending on the, the use of geological structures to sequester carbon dioxide. That, that would help the extent that it's feasible. It might be feasible in a few places, like Bass Strait sequestering emissions from the Latrobe Valley in Victoria. But uh, the more important point 
is that the old hubs of the uh, transmission system built around coal generators are going to be means of bringing low-cost renewable energy back, the same wires bringing energy back to those areas which become great centres of manufacturing. Take, for example, Gladstone in Queensland and Newcastle uh, in New South Wales. They are great manufacturing centres based historically on coal. Uh, Newcastle were coal-producing steel originally and then aluminium and uh, Gladstone aluminium. Well, those same uh, power networks, those uh, uh, power systems, can bring re- low-cost renewable energy back, and, and they, uh, that will help to sustain aluminium plants that are already there and are going to be closed if we don't make this transition. But it would allow a great expansion of industry and expansion of aluminium uh, processing, but uh, uh, also uh, new industries uh, based on low-cost energy. So... Uh, the, the, the ease of transition is, is going to come from these old industrial centres having uh, advantages in the low-carbon world to which we are headed. Well, thank you both very much for coming on. The Exchange is produced by Sharon Lamb and Freddie Joyner. And please subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcast. And check us out every day on breakingviews.com.